Welcome to the Payments Podium podcast hosted by the Payments Professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Payments Professor here, and I would like to welcome you to the Payments Podium. Today, we're going to talk about fraud, how you can successfully commit it. I mean, how you can successfully stop fraud. And to be able to really get into an in-depth, and let's talk real deep into what's happening globally when it comes to fraud and especially faster payments. I've got Andrew Gomez from Lippus Advisors with us. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm all right, Kevin. How are you? Fabulous and glad to have you on. So today's topic is really, you know, going to be focusing on fraud and, and what's happening in the world of faster payments and focusing really on what Americans should be thinking about the American financial institutions, because, you know, we've got RTP, which is still in its infancy, but getting to be a strong toddler, I'd have to say it's been around four or five years now. And we've got Fed now coming. And with all these faster payment solutions, we don't want to get hit with a wave of fraud. And I really believe, and I've always said that we can learn from what's happened in the other areas of the world where faster payments have already been in place. So let's start off with, when it comes to especially faster payments fraud, what have you been seeing in the European markets? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. I mean, I think one thing I can say, no matter what market I'm looking at, we basically see two overarching types of fraud. We have this, you know, the classic unauthorized fraud, right, where someone's kind of hacked into your account or they've done some, some type of SIM swap pretending to be you and gotten your access to your data um, or your credentials. Uh, and, you know, they, they essentially steal money from you, right? So this is transactions that you did not authorize, uh, money's left your account and, and now you're, you're kind of stuck. The other type of fraud, which is controversial, even calling it fraud, would be kind of the, the authorized fraud. Uh, I think the more common name for this would be a scam, right? So think about someone sending you a text message uh, saying, hey, this is grandma, uh, you know, or, or, you know, typically it'll be actually, I guess the other way around, it'll be someone pretending to be someone's grandchild and say, hey, you know, uh, I lost my school books. Can you send me a thousand dollars so I can buy books for the semester or something, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people will get caught with this. Um, I'm sure, you know, anyone in the United States has watched the local news and probably some seen some type of fraud on Zelle. Um, you know, over the last six to nine months, we've seen a, a real uh, uptick in, in Zelle based fraud. Um, and, you know, the fraud here is actually really interesting because it's not just tech scams, but it's also things like uh, Corona money, right? So governments were get, sending out money and people were pretending to be, uh, you know, either bankers or someone from the government saying, hey, can you uh, confirm that this is your actual account? You know, send, send you know, $10 to, to confirm. And, you know, from the bank side, a lot of would say, well, this isn't fraud. This is a scam. And you know the issue is with the scam, not with the payment itself. Um, and so these are the two main types of fraud. Um, and this has been more of an issue in, in certain types of countries. Um, the UK, for example, approved push payment fraud has been a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, in other markets, we don't really see that much of this. We can go into a little bit, a little why uh, later about why that is. Um, but I think in the end, and this is something that. Uh, I think banks need to start really thinking about is from a consumer perspective, 
the difference between authorized and unauthorized fraud doesn't actually matter. In the end, they're out money. And, they're, and, and for them, they don't care whether it was a scam or fraud or, or what it was. They just know, look, I had money in my account and now it's gone. And I'd like it to be back in my account. Um, so I think it's, even if banks you know, wanna differentiate and their legal liabilities, it's important for them to understand what type of fraud it was. In the end, I think in some cases, the public relations aspect of fraud can be just as important. So in the end, um, let's say that, you know, grandma got tricked into sending $1,000 and now she's out money. Her trust in the system, her trust in that app or her trust in her bank is going to suffer regardless of whether it's actually the bank's fault or not. And I think it's important to keep that in mind moving forward when we see what, what's happening. Um, in terms of what else is happening in other markets, you know, I think SimSwap is, is, is actually a really Wait, wait, let's, let's talk about that trust in the system, because from public sure. relations, you know, one of the things that we've seen grown here in the U.S., and I'm sure it's around the world, it, it, it is that fraud that deals with, hey, what is your reputation? Well, you know, what's it look like? How's it going to be affected? Reputational fraud is huge. I, I can remember, I think it was about seven or eight years ago now, there was a, a company that got on the radio advertising, we can protect your reputational fraud. And I'm like, how? How in the world can you track everything, especially social media wise nowadays, to protect somebody's reputation? Needless to say, they disappeared within a couple of months. As, you know, I never heard the advertisements, haven't seen anybody even claim to do something like that. But sometimes on the reputational fraud, it's not even their fault because, you know, sometimes social media takes off or the news takes off with this story. Where can we go spin that around? What can somebody do if they're suffering that reputational fraud when it comes to faster payments to be able to protect themselves to keep a good view? Because, you know, from the American side, that's that's something we definitely want to be able to do. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of small things that individually may not make a big or make a big difference. But when you do all of them and you have a national or community-wide response, you actually you can combat fraud, preventing that rape, reputational risk. So one good example would be you know, the confirmation of payee. So okay. you know, if I open up my, my Zelle app and I want to send money to someone, if the system would ping the recipient account to get the name off of that account and then show it to me, either you know, for data privacy reasons, maybe it can't show me the full name, but what it could say is, you know, if you, hey, by the way, the account you're trying to pay, the name isn't Kevin Olson, it's actually John Smith. Or, or maybe it just says, it's not Kevin Olson, we can't tell you who it is, but it's not who you think it is. That could already, you know, warn me, hey, by the, oh, okay, I might have the wrong number, or maybe, you know, the person I tried sending, maybe they changed accounts recently, something happened, right? So that's that first instance where the sending party should be, should be made aware something does not quite match. Um, another thing that could happen is, let's say I see that it's not matching and I choose to send it anyway. Your bank app could have a little pop-up that says, please be aware, uh, this might be a suspicious transaction because the name on your uh, that you're trying to send money to doesn't match the name on the account. That extra bit, bit of friction might cause people that are in a rush to take a second look, having to press that extra button, being aware, okay, I now realize that if I make this payment, I'm not protected. That's another small way there. 
Well, and I know that there's some apps here that actually look at your contacts. If you're doing it from a mobile device to be able to say, hey, these are in your contact list. So uh, confirmation of payee, I agree. That one's huge being able to get that because we, we want to just be able to send by name or phone number, or email address. We don't want to know people's banking information, but uh, they send it anyway. Is there, there anything else that they can do to be able to protect themselves? Yeah, so I think there also should be just in very clean language, information from the bank saying, okay, look, when you use Zelle, here are your protections, i.e. there are none. <laughs> don't send money to people you don't know. Don't send uh, uh, large amounts of money to someone. You, want, you can't get that money back. You know, it's just that, are you sure you wanna make this payment kind of a thing? That's, I mean, it's adding a little bit of friction, I think is sometimes considered a no-no, right? People don't want to add friction because the whole point is frictionless. Um, but I think when it comes to fraud, that's a big one. Um, second, you could even imagine only putting extra uh, bits of warnings at certain thresholds. So maybe, you know, based on your account, anything under $100 is kind of whatever. You're not really worried about it, right? I mean, for some people, $100 is a lot more money than for other people. So each account could have different thresholds at where you receive a warning. Maybe it's $20, maybe it's $50, maybe it's $500. Mm -hmm. Another one could be... Um, when you don't put it, when you put it in a contact for the first time, maybe you put a freeze on how long until uh, you can make that payment to that new recipient. So in some countries, for example, if I put a new phone number into my phone book, I can't pay that person for, for two hours. Now you might, you might say, well, that's a really long time. Doesn't that defeat the whole purpose? And to a certain extent it does, but it's also there for fraud protection. So there were, there were situations in Brazil where people were being kidnapped and being basically said, you need to make a real-time payment using uh, the real-time scheme there called PIX, and um, then we'll let you go. And so they were seeing a whole bunch of fraud at night. Um, another, another thing that they did was they lowered the transaction value limit between, I think it was 8 p.m. and like 6 a.m. So uh -huh. basically you weren't able to make these, you know, ransom payments at night. But when um, they just hold them till the next morning? Yes and no. It became, it, it, I mean, they could, but what ends up happening is if your bank sees a whole bunch of payments going in at 6.15 a.m., that already is, a, is another red flag, right? So, I mean, normally people probably aren't making, you know, $1,000 payments at 6.15 on a, on a Tuesday or, or 6.15 on a, on a Sunday for that matter. So it's just an, another red flag to the, the bank. And I, I think another thing that, that banks should be doing, and this goes back to the whole need for automation and updating their, their, their core systems is building consumer profiles. So think about, okay, you know, John Smith, you know, he's 35 years old. He makes payments, you know, approximately one payment per day. Uh, you know, every two weeks, there's a, a $1,500 payment. That's probably his rent. You know, a couple times a week, he goes out for dinner. Uh, you know, you can see, you can kind of map all the different types of payments. So like behavioral if, analytics. So yeah, behavioral analytics. Okay. And furthermore, your bank knows what are the top 10 IP addresses that your phone's connecting to, right? It's your home Wi-Fi. It's maybe the Wi-Fi on the train. It's your office. It's maybe the Starbucks around the corner. You know, they have a, a list of different places. 
when all of a sudden, when, when, when you're making a, a really large payment for, you know, from the consumer perspective, and you're doing so from an IP address that you've never made a payment before. And by the way, the account you're paying is another account that you've never paid before. All of these things together should create a red flag. Mm-hmm. And your bank should be, a, you know, that, that should be a, a warning sign to your bank. Um, so I think there's a lot of work that the banks can do on the behavioral analytics side mm-hmm. um, about, about, about payments. And, you know, I don't mean to say that every bank needs to do this for every single customer. Maybe they, they set different thresholds or they have different, different um, let's say, barriers to this, right? So, so again, making a payment or a $2,000 payment to an account you've never paid before. Um, you know, doing so when, by the way, that $2,000 is 90, 90% of the funds in that account, like that, that should be a bit of a red flag, right? Um, just little things like this. And given the, the technology that we have nowadays, a lot of this is being done in different, in different countries and, in, and by different institutions. I think it's really about taking all of the different applications together and putting them together to create a strong anti-fraud um, system. Multiple um, layers of security in place, yeah. Yeah, and you know, there, there are more. I mean, these are all things that individual banks can do, but I think there's a lot that, that can be done at the processor level. So when we look at, you know, uh, in, in the US case, right, the clearinghouse or the Fed, they are perfectly positioned to see when fraud is happening because they see both sides of every transaction, the sending party and the receiving party. So they know, for example, you know, this account typically receives five to six payments a month. You know, maybe it's, it's two paychecks plus a couple other random payments, right? If that account all of a sudden is being hit with 50 or 100 or, or, or 200 incoming payments a month, that should raise a red flag. That's not normal for a consumer account. Mm-hmm. That, that person's bank, should, should, that should raise a red flag. Why are so many payments hitting this account all of a sudden? And can't they put in like an out-of-band authentication in there? Because I mean, I know if I do certain things, I receive emails or I receive texts. Now, the catch is if it's being done from a phone and it's a compromised device, well, they're gonna, the, the crook then is not only in the banking app sending these payments, they're also getting the text and probably have access to the emails. But it's still, you know, is it a false sense of security then? Or is there anything else that can be done? Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. So one of the things that my, my research recently pointed out was actually cross-industry cooperation. So for example, SIM swapping fraud was a major issue in various markets. And we're actually seeing um, the financial, let's say the financial community now working with the telecommunications industry. So a concrete example of this would be, okay, Every day, a, a, a list of SIM swaps goes out and says, okay, these phone numbers were recently switched or these, these SIM cards were recent, recently switched to a new number. All banks where this number is being used as a proxy for a bank account should be aware of suspicious activity. Wow. And this is, this is something that can, can be done. I mean, the, the telephone, you know, Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile, they have this information. They know when, when a user has called and asked the, a, a phone number to be moved to a new SIM. They, they know this. And there's very little reason not to share that with the banks. Now, I don't think we're seeing this kind of fraud being a major issue in the US. And that's because 
the number of mobile payments in the U.S. is still, you know, for its size, relatively small, right? It's not like, say, Sweden, where your average Swede is making a, essentially one payment on mobile, their mobile device per week. I mean, we're not, we're not at that level yet in the U.S., so maybe this isn't such an issue, but it is an issue in other markets. But can and we be clear too for anybody listening in that the the communicate the financial community and telecommunications community sharing this information is happening in other countries, not in the U.S. Is that correct? That yeah, where that sharing information some, is because okay. I don't yeah, want somebody so listening to go. Well, why didn't they detect that this happened? Well, it's not here yet. But just like we're saying, too, we're talking about this fraud. You do see, though, the fraud happening in other countries, and this is the way to combat it. And it is something that we believe will come to the U.S. because we are getting more faster payment options, especially with Fed now coming in 2023. This is going to happen to us, and this is what we can learn from other countries. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there needs to be some level of cross-industry cooperation. Uh, another thing that can be done are, let's say that, you know, Bank A figures out that one of their customers is actually a fraudster. They've been stealing money from people. Um, we're, we're seeing in other countries is the creation of essentially blacklists, right, where, where an individual is a known fraudster and that information gets shared around other banks so that they can take more precautions if that person tries to open up account. That doesn't necessarily mean that individual is blocked from opening account. It just means that maybe the KYC um, um, uh, regulations will be enforced a little bit more strictly, or maybe there'll be some other, other blocks put on the account, right? You can't receive more than 30 Zelle payments per, per week, for example, or mm -hmm. you can't receive uh, more than $500 a transaction. Or, or you can imagine another alert being saying, uh, imagine a situation where a known fraudster sends a request to pay to someone via, you know, one of the payment apps and the sending, the, 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 the payer gets a notification, by the way, this account was, 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 was flagged as being uh, highly suspicious. You know, that's something else that a central infrastructure led uh, warning system could provide. This podcast is brought to you by the VSoft Corporation. VSoft offers core processing, digital banking, and payment processing solutions for financial institutions of all sizes. Follow us on Twitter at VSoft underscore corp and online at VSoftCorp.com. Okay, back to the show. Well, you know, here's the catch, though. Uh, I think it might be the catch, as you know, um, because I know you work in the foreign markets, but you are U.S. born. You've lived in the U.S. I want everybody listening to know that, you know, Andrew does know what it's like. He is an American. He just lives abroad and studies and works with these foreign systems. But as you know, in the U.S., we have things like the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that is overprotection, in my opinion, many ways, that a lot of times these types of things aren't allowed. That even though, yes, we know it, hey, this person's known to be a fraudster, you still have to give them an account, but you can't tell anybody else. We've seen a lot of carve-outs in scheme rules all around the world for data protection. I mean, in Europe, for example, GDPR is extremely strict on what type of uh, consumer information can be shared, but there's always a carve-out for fraud. And you know, if the CFPB wants to say, look, you can't share this kind of information, I would 
highly suggest that there be carve-outs for, for known fraudsters. It's one thing to say innocent until proven guilty. It's another one to say, yeah, but if he's proven guilty, then why, why can't other people at least be made aware? And, and, and it, I'm not saying that you just say you can't um, make a payment. I'm saying maybe that warning gets sent out uh, to people you know, when they're soliciting money. Or for example, let's say that that, that fraudster's account he's already sent out 150 requests that day. Does he really need to be able to send out 150 requests? Maybe he can only send out five requests or 10 requests. So not just dollar limits, not just time limits, but the number of request limits as well. Exactly. I mean, one of the things we saw in the UK with the, with the corona um, aid, you know, the, the corona scam, was people sending out requests for money to validate your account from the, from the city or from the state. They don't really have states in the UK, but um, you know, maybe it was only a ten-pound request, which doesn't sound like a big deal. Yeah, but if you send if you send out a thousand requests, each of them for ten pounds, you you can make a lot of money in a, what is essentially a very easy easy way. Um, so you know, is there a real reason why a consumer needs to be able to send out five hundred requests um, in a single day? Probably not. And if you look at other mobile systems around the world. You'll, if you go into the fine print, you'll actually see that there are, are limits in the sense of, you know, you can only send 50 requests per week, or maybe it's, you know, 50 requests per month. And for the average consumer, that's more than enough. I mean, who's really, risk, you know, asking people for money, you know, two, two times every day for an entire month? Right. Um, well, I, if you have kids, there it's a happening, okay? <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and, and you can even further go, you can go further and say, well, look, uh, you know, to certain accounts, like my, my children, for example, I'm going to, I'm going to put them on a plan and they're, they're, they're not considered, you know, uh, external, so to say. Right. So, so, you know, they can make as many requests as they want, but no one else can. I mean, there's, there are technological ways around this. Uh, I Agreed. remember, you know, 15 years ago when I got, when I had one of those, uh, you know, pre-smartphones. Um, I had one of those razor phones from, I think it was T-Mobile and I had like five hot contacts and I could call those five numbers as many times as I wanted on my payment plan. Uh, after that, I got charged. I don't remember what it was, whatever it was per minute or per call, you know, so you can imagine a bank doing something similar here, are the 10 accounts, you can ask them for as much money or send as much money as you want. But after that, uh, you know, you, there's a certain limit. Um, these are all doable with, with the technology we have today. Agreed. Yes. You know, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, though, because you talked about, I, I want to say it's uh, not favorable, but an ingenious use case. When you look and see that Brazil, the, the kidnappers were using the faster payment system. I mean, that's not how I want to see it done. But you looked at a lot of other countries and in the other countries that you saw, what were some of the other lessons that were learned from working with faster payments and the fraud that was taking place and things that could be done? Do any of the other countries really stick out to you? Yeah, so I think what Japan is doing in terms of the, the industry-wide information sharing, so sharing, sharing information on known fraudsters, um, sharing information on suspected fraudster accounts. Uh, in the UK, they have their money mule tracking system, right, where they identify suspected money mule accounts and, and try to shut down, shut down those accounts. These are all really interesting. Um, the thing I mentioned earlier regarding cross, 
industry cooperation, right, with the telcos sharing information on, on um, mobile phone numbers that have been recently switched so that those numbers can't be used for fraud. Um, you know, that's another really in interesting one. Um, and I, I see a big, strong sharing of information theme going here. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that in the end, you know, when you have a country the size of the U.S., you can't expect that, you know, a credit union from, I don't know, Kansas City is going to know, have, 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 you know, relevant information for, you know, consumers in New York. I mean, it's, the country is too big for, for something like that. But what you can get is a centralized depository of information that, that pushes out information, you know, three times a week or every day, you know, every Monday through Friday to, to FI saying, okay, here's your watch list, you know, in the same way that OFAC works. You know, we, we already get this kind of information for other things. Why not for fraud as well? I mean, we can do it with credit scores for everybody. Why can't we do it for this? Exactly. And another, another thing that I see, and this is a really big one, unfortunately, this is not, you know, the banks aren't able to solve this on their own, is, is the use of digital identity. The ability for individuals to verify digitally that they are who they say they are. Uh, in a way that you can't, um, you can't, you know, take someone else's thumbprint, or at least, I mean, I guess theoretically you can, but it's a lot more difficult to steal someone's thumbprint to authenticate yourself when you're, when you, when you're making a payment. Um, so here I'm thinking about the various Nordic countries that have digital ID systems that are attached actually to their uh, mobile phones. So that when, let's say in Sweden, uh, this is the one I always go to, with bank ID there, if I'm using the Swish app to make a payment, I have to then authenticate myself via bank ID. It automatically redirects me to, to bank ID. I put on my thumbprint, bank ID says, yep, you're good to go. It takes me back to the Swish app and the payment is released. So wow. even if someone steals my phone and has the ability to open my phone, they still don't have my thumbprint and they cannot authenticate themselves using even though they have my phone and they've they, they've somehow guessed my password or they've you know social they fished it and they you know they got my password my date of birth my address they still don't have my thumbprint and you'd have to be a super high profile target for somebody to go to the extent of getting your thumbprint you know that that would be like some mission impossible type stuff going on there. So I, I see where it's, that would be a, a great deterrent for people. So I, I, I mean, I love the things that you're sharing here, the confirmation of AE, the having the different limits, the t time limits of, of overnight of being able to do it, the limits of the dollar amounts, the limits of the number of requests that can be made either weekly or monthly even, the behavior analytics, the cross-industry cooperation. I, I'm really big on that one, especially the sharing of information. And when you mentioned the money mule in, in UK, we, we might have to have a discussion on that one day too. But I really do like that use of digital identity. The, the thing that comes up with the digital identity is I hear some people talking about the metaverse coming around. And you know, am, am I going to have to exist in a digital world? Would that solve for a lot of the fraud that we see is if people were more willing to adopt that digital identity? I mean, how well has it worked in other countries like in Sweden? Because it sounds like one heck of a deterrent. Yeah, I mean, the use of bank ID, I think, has really put a, a stop on a lot of you know, unauthorized fraud. Um, a lot of this, though, doesn't necessarily stop the authorized fraud or you know, the, the scams. 
Um, and in the end, though, there's not much you can do there. I mean, you can you can ask for confirmation of payee. You can you can put limits on the number of payments or the value of the payments you're sending. You know, you can you can limit the number of requests for payments. Um, but you know, in the end, if someone tricks someone to you know send them you know I don't know five hundred dollars, in the end, it's going to be really hard to to stop that. However, one other thing that we're seeing is in the UK, they have a voluntary kind of code of conduct whereby the banks sign up to it. And if consumers are deemed to not have been negligent uh, and they're victims of approved push payment fraud, they'll be refunded that way. And you know, one would say, well, that doesn't that give them an incentive to be careless? And I'd say, well, not quite because they have to be deemed to not have been negligent. Um, and this goes back to the point earlier about confirmation of payee. If a little pop-up comes up and says, hey, the person you're trying to pay doesn't match the name on this account, that's, you know, and you click send anyway, then the bank can go back and say, well, yeah, but you know what? You're being negligent. We warned you this was not the person and you sent it anyway. Therefore, we're not going to refund you. Um, you know, the CFPB has come out with a FAQ that is similar to that code now. That is, is almost said that, hey, if they were scammed or tricked, they get the money back. Yeah, and I think I think this might give some incentive to banks to be able to put more effort into their education of, of, of their consumers. And I think that's a good thing. You know, on the one hand, from the consumer perspective, I want things to be fast. I want them to be easy. And I don't want to have to pay very much for them. I mean, I'm kind of in, indirectly paying for them anyway in terms of my banking fees. Um, but you know what? Um, I think I've, I might even mentioned this story to you before, but you know, a couple of years ago, I was booking a flight to California and my, my American-based credit card uh, denied me because they said, well, you live in San Francisco. Why are you buying a flight while you're located in Berlin from Berlin to San Francisco? That's clearly not you. And they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me uh, book the flight. And of course, uh, you know, at that point- And like, you've been there ever the since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm still stuck here. <laughs> um, no, but, but, you know, in the end, it was annoying for me, but I was really glad that my card company was, was looking out for the 1200 euro purchase I was making, you know, and I, yeah, was it annoying? Sure. It took me half an hour to call them up to show that I was who I said I was. I had to give them my date of birth, my address, the number on the card, my, you know, what else did I have to give them? Probably my, my social, I don't remember. It was, it was several years ago. The point is, it was a bit of a hassle, but for, you know, a thousand dollar or $1,200 purchase, I was okay with that. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have been okay with it if it was a $20, right? But, and this is what I meant earlier about thresholds, you know, for, for something of that high of a value, that's perfectly reasonable for, you know, sharing lunch, that's probably a bit overkill. And so I think there's a bit of a, um, you know, you need to be a little bit sensitive and reasonable when, when thinking about these, about these, uh, protections and you know every bank might come up with with you know different guidelines and I think that's perfectly fine to do that but in the end uh you know going back to what we were talking about in the beginning it's their reputation on the line and if I as a consumer feel like I'm scammed and my bank isn't doing enough to protect me you know I can go onto Twitter or talk to the local news and the bank's going to look bad and the back fact to that is, reputational you know, risk yep and there's, yeah, exactly. In the court of public opinion, you're guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around. And so I think banks need to really think about that. Well, and can I also point out too, I tell people all the time, faster payments does not equal faster fraud. 
Because in these cases of where things have happened, you know, the unauthorized, we really can stop that. Most of it, at least. It's the authorized that it requires the education. And here in the U.S., without having full-blown faster payments used by everybody, though we do have it available uh, and not everybody's using it, we still have that fraud. We still have it through the other payment channels. And when faster payments come, will it happen on that channel? Oh, absolutely. But it's still the people being duped into it, being scammed, being tricked. And I, I, I say education is the only way to fix it. But even with all the education in the world, people still get tricked. Well, I don't know if you, you know, I know this was really big in Germany the last couple of weeks. I'm guessing that Netflix show Inventing Anna. Uh-huh. Did you see this one? Have I have not that? yet. So it's about the socialite, right? This, this Russian girl who, as a, as a teenager, moved to Germany. And in her early 20s, she moves to the U.S. And she just creates this fake persona that she's a, a, an heiress to, you know, tens of millions of euros in Germany. And, you know, New York society was giving her all this money, you know, and she was, uh, in, the, in the end, she was caught and she was sent to prison and she was just released uh, a couple, I think like a year ago or so. Um, but, you know, you had all these people in New York who just believed that she was who she said she was, even though in the end, none of the, none of the fake things that she provided turned out. But this is about, you know, in one on one sense, you could say, well, yeah, but she never got the loan. You know, she the financial system in the end prevented her from getting what she wanted. But she still ran off with something like fifty thousand dollars in cash. And this was, you know, with a passport that was a Russian passport, even though she was claiming to be German. Um, you know, the, the name on the passport clearly didn't match what her name, what she was saying her name was. And you think to yourself, like, look. Enforcing the, the, the rules on that we already have and enforcing them more strictly will do one thing. Second, you know, going back to the digital ID thing, if you develop some type of system that can really truly authenticate that you are who you say you are, I'm not saying it's going to eliminate fraud completely, but it will take, it will make it a lot more difficult. Um, and, you know, she was like using Microsoft Word to create uh, fake bank statements. And, you know, she created aliases in Germany and then used like one of these uh, uh, devices to change her voice on the phone. So when people called to check in, she just pretended to be that person. I mean, it was I mean, quite clever in many ways, um, but it made a lot of people look really dumb. Um, and it's a really good series. You should you should watch it. I, mean, I got it was, a feeling I'm going to be watching it now. It's almost like you've given the professor homework. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go do my homework now because you are definitely shown to be a, an expert on what's happening in the world of payments fraud. Uh, wow. I, I love that is a way to end right there too. enforce the rules and develop a system like digital ID and the enforcing of the rules, like your experience with the plane ticket. It showed that when you enforce the rules, when you stick to the system, it can be an inconvenience, but it is an overall protection and an inconvenience. I got to agree for $1,200 for 20, 30 minutes. I'm okay with, I wouldn't be for the lower amounts. So Andrew, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the payments podium. You've left us with a lot to think about when it comes to faster payments fraud. And for all of you out there listening, Andrew works with Lippus Advisors. You can find him. It's Andrew Gomez. He's on LinkedIn. You can also go to lippusadvisors.com. Is that correct? 
to be able to, yeah, to find out more about Lippus. Um, I know you've been on here before and uh, they've always got some great information out there and available. Do some incredible consulting if you're looking for some consultants uh, globally. They, they've got, the, I mean, these are the experts on faster payments that I go to for any information that I need. I just got to go ahead and say it. Payments professor endorsed without a doubt. And if there's a, a topic you'd like to have on the payments podium, or there's a speaker you think I should go uh, talk to, just send me an email, Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. And I'll definitely look into that, see what I can do. This again has been our faster payments discussion, especially what's happening global with Andrew Gomez. I'm the payments professor, Kevin Olson, and I hope you guys have a wonderful day. But for now, I got to say, class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson. See you on Thursday.